0: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com/sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase. From Amazon or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom.
1: So we've come to the end of the first day, which, you know, by and large, in kind of meditation lore, we often consider the most difficult day of all. (laughs) It's not to say that everything else is perfectly easy necessarily. But for almost everyone, it's a huge adjustment to settling in, to being quiet, to going within, to looking within. It's quite a process. And in the beginning, it's so normal, as you've probably experienced today, to sometimes feel this kind of wild careening from sleepiness to restlessness and sleepiness to restlessness. And I've often thought myself when I'm, say, here doing a retreat, as a meditator, that when I start, it's almost like there are these two voices inside of my mind. One says, oh, there's nothing happening here. Let's just go to sleep. Even if I've slept for 15 hours, it doesn't matter. And the other voice says something like, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen in this huge torrent of thinking and planning and creativity and uh, restlessness. And, so much of that, and that's not a problem. You know, we know that just in this process, inevitably, we go through times like that, that it tends to be most intense at the beginning. More of a problem is utterly believing the thought, which so commonly arises that says, oh, no, six more days, exactly like this. <laughs> it's never going to change. That's a problem. But seeing that is a good thing, isn't it? Because then we have a much better sense of the kind of patterns that uh, we get so caught up in in our minds. And that really is the nature of the meditative process. You know, there are lots of ways of practicing meditation. There's so many methods and styles and I think it's good, too, to have a feeling of experimentation, to check out a lot of different things and see what might suit you or might suit you at a different time in a certain time in your life. But some of the common threads are also very useful to understand. The word meditation itself is the common translation of this word from the uh, t- from the. Pali language, which is the language of the original Buddhist texts. The word is bhavana, and it literally means cultivation. So if you think of the Buddha in this very agrarian society, using images that made a lot of sense to all of the people he was speaking to, it's this idea of cultivating the ground. We're cultivating the ground so some really wondrous things can emerge. But the process is one of cultivation. It's not our normal way of relating, which tends to be one of acquisition. You know, thinking, I'm going to get something, I'm going to own it, I'm going to possess it, I'm going to be able to tell everyone about it next Monday. You know, I can boast, here's the thing. You know, we reify our experience, we try to hold on, we grasp, we cling. And we often you know, feel kind of bereft that we need more, and we need more, and we need more, and this, this constant uh, sense of acquiring. So I was in um, Toronto not too long ago, and somebody was driving me to the workshop that I was going to do. And there was a giant billboard that we passed. And it was just a picture of a car and then this phrase, Lust conquers everything. And then we just went on. And I kept, you know, kind of like trying to turn around, like, what was that about? And and we never went down that route again. So I never got to really examine that. But I thought, well, yeah, we do have that message, don't we? You know, uh, coming at us. And, you know, and one of the great challenges of meditation is that we're asked to be different. You know, not to be in that sort of mad race to acquire a new and better experience and not to be judging ourselves so harshly and uh, thinking in terms of success and failure. You know, it's letting go of a lot of old ways of relating, old ways of thinking. That's why it's such an adventure. So bhavana means cultivation. We're cultivating the ground. We're doing the work. It's like we're... We're nurturing that soil so that the fruit, the flower that we want, can can emerge. In the Tibetan tradition, some Tibetan traditions, there's a a kind of fun explication of that word bhavana, where they also, uh, of course, talk about it as cultivation. But they have this phrase associated with it. And that phrase is something like getting used to it. So when we're meditating according to that perspective we're getting used to it. And what are we getting used to? The the idea seems to be that it's like a belief that we really have by and large had some very profound experiences in our life. You know, just from living a life, we've had moments of enormous connection and wisdom and clarity and caring. But we don't tend to be awfully used to them. you know. So we have an experience like that, and it's kind of fleeting. And maybe we think, what was that? I don't think I'll tell anyone about that. Or that was freaky. Or I need that. I have to get it back. How do I get it back? I don't know how to get it back. I feel kind of desperate now. You know, so we're practicing not to get something totally unknown and kind of unbelievable for us, you know, so distant, so far away. But we're practicing more to get used to, to abide in, to dwell in, to feel at home in the kinds of moments of clarity, wisdom, understanding, love, compassion that in fact we have had. And even if you don't feel very confident about that, you know, from the Buddhist point of view, all of these things are part of a capacity that we have. It, that capacity certainly may not be fully flowered, but as a capacity, as a potential, it is never, ever destroyed. To love, to connect, to care, to see how things actually are. So no matter what we might go through, And no matter what we might yet go through as a person, that capacity, it's like that seed form, is never, ever destroyed. It may be covered over, and it usually is. It may be obscured. It may be hard to find. And it may be very hard to trust, but it's there. There's nothing that we can go through that can destroy it. And so we practice meditation to return. To abide, to dwell, to help in the flourishing of of those capacities that are within and so um, it's different you know in so many ways from how we normally are, even in the practice, say of uh, being with the breath and and being mindful as we've practiced today. <laughs> you know I first went to India. To practice meditation in ah, 1970 and uh, began practicing in uh, January of 1971 at an intensive 10 day retreat. And the very first instruction I got was what we started with last night, really, which was sit down and feel your breath. And I was absolutely appalled. You know, I thought, feel my breath came all the way to India, you know? Like, where's the magical, esoteric, exciting, supernatural technique that's going to transform all of my suffering and help me be enlightened by the end of the 10 days and feel my breath? But then I thought, well, how hard can this be? You know, this stupid thing. And, you know, now I look back and I imagine myself thinking, well, what will it be like, you know, 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind starts to wander? And to my absolute shock, it was like two, you know, or three or four, and then I'd have to begin again, and then two breaths later, I'd have to begin again and begin again. And, you know, and even though I heard over and over again the transformative process is the ability to begin again i kept thinking man i am the worst meditator that ever lived you know i can't believe it you know everyone else here of course without a doubt is sitting in complete bliss you know and it is 900 breaths or a thousand breaths before their mind wanders i'm the only one who's sitting here thinking why isn't anyone else thinking i'm the only one who's thinking you know it would be these long tormented digressions of self-judgment and it took a very long time to begin to understand that what my teachers were presenting wasn't just solace you know it wasn't like they spotted me as the one who couldn't do the real thing you know so they were saying oh you just begin again and begin again that's that's all you can do Um, it wasn't like that you know that is the real thing to realize we've become distracted, to have greater kindness toward ourselves, to relate to ourselves differently, to realize that every single time we come back from having fallen asleep or been restless or swept up in a whole train of thinking, that's the moment when we have the chance to be completely different from how we may have been before especially if our tendency has been to be very judgmental. Every single one of those moments is a transformative moment. And so the, the tableau of, of the meditative process may not look the way we think it should look. You know, we think, okay, you know, it's not 900 breaths, but, you know, I'm not all that familiar with this, so today it was two breaths, tomorrow it'll be 18, the next day it'll be 45, and then by the end of the the week, you know, it will be a thousand breaths. Or, as we're moving into loving-kindness practice, surely I will have forgiven everybody by Saturday, you know, and that'll give me Sunday to, you know, just do something else here. Um, Or I will have loved myself completely by Wednesday, so then you know, I mean, we have these ideas about accumulation and, and a linear path that that actually don't fit the the truth of how this process unfolds, which does involve a lot of mystery and really demands that we put our heart into it without constantly checking and leaving to say, you know, how is it now? Is it better than it was this morning? Um, <laughs> You know, and that's why I said something about a new way of thinking. It involves taking a few risks and really allowing a process to unfold and seeing what the fruit might look like. So, the premise of the meditative process is that in all of this, we are cultivating this capacity, which includes a very great power of mind. And the power comes from, really, the power of attention. And it's not to say that there's an assumption or or a concept that we don't experience, you know, the great ups and downs and the triumphs and trials of life because we do. You know, I think the assumption that we can uh, control. Everything that will arise, or that what arises in our lives shouldn't matter if we were greatly accomplished in a process like this. I think it's actually quite cruel um, to oneself and even worse toward others, you know, when we buy into that. I mean, of course it matters and it hurts and things are difficult and we're challenged in lots and lots and lots of ways. You know, those aren't irrelevant considerations in a life. But it is also true that we have great power of mind. And we know that, you know, just from our lives. You know, you can be in Hawaii in this beautiful, gorgeous setting, you know, rainbows and waterfalls and surrounded by lovely friends, but you're depressed or you're frightened or you're having a real crisis of faith, and you're not having a good time. And we all know, you know, from our own experience or from witnessing others that one can go through actually some very great adversity, uh, some real tremendous challenge and difficulty, and still we don't necessarily feel alone in that. We can accept the helping hands of people reaching out to us or even see that they're there, we can not feel isolated, but instead feel connected to others in this great predicament that is life and all of its vulnerability. We can feel a sense of faith or confidence. We can be in love, even in this terrible difficulty. And it's different than if we are just embittered and feel isolated and cut off. So even though you know we go through these ups and downs and changes and they're very real and impactful, we also have an ability to either feel connected to all of life in the midst of that or to feel shut down and alone and it will be very, very different. So what we're doing is nurturing that capacity. And it all has to do with attention. First of all, working with deepening our ability to concentrate, which is the steadiness or steadfastness of attention. So it's not so flickering and you know, our attention isn't flying all over the place, so we don't feel so disempowered because our energy is all over the place. But it's more gathered and, and centered and, and collected. We have a sense of integration, of wholeness of our being as our energy kind of comes together, even if it's for a moment, even if it's for a few breaths. Over time, as we begin again and we begin again and we come back and we come back, There is a a much greater steadfastness that develops. And then we refine our attention so that it's not so, the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, um, is not so distorted by bias, by past history, by our fears, by our projections. And that's the quality of mindfulness. To be able to recognize, oh, this is what's happening right now. Not, oh, this is what's happening right now, and what's it going to feel like next year? Or, you know, I can't believe I'm still going to be sleepy at the end of the retreat. Or I am the worst person here because I'm falling asleep. whatever it might be that arises. Instead, to really uh, be able to let go or loosen the grip of the ways we might hold on or push away and, and say, okay, this is what's happening right now, which is the basis for learning. You know, if we're struggling against what's going on or we hate it or we hate ourselves for it or, you know, we're just castigating our therapists like forever, like I spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and I'm still angry, I can't believe it. You know, there's not a lot of learning that goes on in that moment. And in the same way, if we are swept up, in these constantly changing states and thrown off-center and completely identified with all the many, many, many things that come and go and come and go, there's also not a lot of learning that happens because there's not enough spaciousness. There's not enough clarity. So what we're trying to do in in mindfulness is really actually quite radical because it's transforming our relationship to everything, to pleasure, to pain, to neutrality, Everything that might arise, our goal is really the same not to push it away and not to be totally lost in it, but to see it for what it is. And that goes for everything. And that's why we say that mindfulness can go anywhere. Because you're not having the, you know, like a wrong experience, a bad experience, just because it hurts. It's not that pleasant, but it's not bad. And that's so freeing to realize that every single thing that arises in our bodies and our minds and our experience can be the field for uh, such a, a rich field for learning, for understanding, for wisdom. And that we haven't failed because, you know, for a certain phase or at a certain time, it's kind of difficult or challenging. And then we come to a place, um, which is really what this retreat is about. Now, having steadied our attention or at least understanding some techniques to work with that and having refined our attention or at least getting a sense of confidence about techniques to work with that. We also can uh, really broaden our attention and expand our attention. And I like to use the phrase play with our attention. You know, to very consciously move out of what might be a very familiar kind of rut in how we see ourselves or how we see others, and to really make a pretty bold experiment in play, you know? So, for example, um, you know, and this is one of my favorite examples these days. Let's say you're the kind of person who, has the habit of, at the end of the day, sort of looking back at yourself in evaluation, like, how did I do today? And let's just say you're the kind of person who tends to pretty much only focus on or even obsess about everything you did wrong, let's just say. You know, So it's the end of the day, and you're going over and over and over and over that really stupid thing you said at lunch, at the meeting. So the practice of loving kindness would be almost like one of asking yourself, anything else happened today? Like, anything good within me? And that takes effort. Because maybe after years of habituation, we just so naturally gravitate to that kind of fixation of what's wrong with us, it actually takes some effort to kind of say, anything else happened today? But it can be a playful effort. You know, it, it shouldn't feel phony or um, something that's just kind of self-conscious or self-righteous. And it's not aligned with delusion. It's not as though you say, you're insisting, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch? You know, maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences to that. But that's not all that we are, ever. You know, that sense of collapse, that certainty, that fixedness. I am that person who said that really stupid thing. And that's all I will ever be. That's what we're challenging, is that collapse. And you think about You know, who we pay attention to and who we look right through, who we ignore, who forms the other for us, not even through antipathy or, you know, fear or prejudice, but just through ignoring them, indifference. You know, and when someone has become the other, what happens to them is it doesn't count for us. It's negligible because they're like an object. They're not like a feeling being. How many people, how many creatures, you know, do we just discount in that way? Because we don't pay attention to them. So you could almost say, in that sense, the practice of loving kindness is realizing or recognizing that tendency and just turning it around so that we do pay attention in that moment. To someone who we have previously considered unimportant for us or not counting for us. It's all kinds of things like that. You know, it's realizing the power of our attention and being willing to experiment in all of these different ways. So loving kindness is metta doesn't really mean liking somebody, which would be a little coercive, wouldn't it? Actually, (laughs) given the season, um, one of my favorite comments ever that somebody made about loving kindness practice uh, to me was when they told me they absolutely detested the meditation because it reminded them of a continually enforced Valentine's Day. You know, like on the count of three, you will be filled with love, no matter what you're really feeling. You know, just this sort of veneer. It's very phony and put upon. And, and of course, it's not like that at all. Um, it doesn't mean you like everybody. It doesn't mean you like anybody, actually. But fundamentally, what loving kindness is, is like a recognition of connection. Instead of that construct we hold so strongly of self and other and us and them we realize that that is just a construct, that the truth of life is that we live in a world of interconnectedness, that, in fact, what happens over there never just stays over there, you know, without filtering back in some way, that our lives more uh, truthfully reflect like a network. You know, that's how things actually are. It's like um, when IMS had its, I think, twentieth or twenty-fifth anniversary. Um, because it's in the winter, we, you know, you felt you couldn't really have a good party here in the winter, so we celebrated in the summer, and uh, we had this event. And during the course of the event, uh, some of the teenagers who sit here, because we have a, a retreat for teenagers every year um, planted a tree in the garden so you can go down there now you know and see the tree and there's a way of seeing the tree and just kind of seeing it as a a seemingly separate entity just standing there it's a tree or you can go down to the garden and you can look at the tree and you can just get a sense of the soil which is nourishing it, and all the different things that affect the quality of that soil, and the rain, which falls upon it, and all the many, many, many elements and conditions that affect the quality of that rainfall, and the sunlight, and the moonlight, and the quality of the air. And you can sense, in a way, all the generations of people, and now us, you know, who steward that plot of land, that is maintaining our tree, you know that tree, and so you can look at the tree and see it truthfully as just a tree standing there, or you can also sense it as a a confluence of conditions and elements and relationships, and that's also the tree. And that's the perspective of loving kindness. It's like the reflection I like to do. Um, you know, in describing uh, metta is, you know, which we can do, all of us now, is just to have everybody reflect for a few moments on the many beings who are somehow, have been somehow involved in your being here in this room right now. You know, how many people gave you a book? Or read you a poem? Or told you about their meditation experience, or told you about this place. How many, many people? You know, no one was like driving down Pleasant Street and thought, I'm going to go in there. You know? Every single one of us is here as a result of relationships, interactions, connections. I went to India that first time as a student at the State University of New York at Buffalo. I had theoretically a year of independent study uh, to do. It lasted a little longer. But, uh, you know, so sometimes when I do this reflection, I think about the Board of Regents, which gave me my scholarship to college, or the people at that department who, you know, approved my independent study project. That said, I want to go to India and study Buddhist meditation. Because they're obviously a part of my being here right now. And when I do this reflection, I also sometimes include the people whose actions have really, really hurt me. You know, not the ones that I just find kind of annoying or irritating, but the times when I felt like I've really gone to an edge. So that I've said, I will not be free until I understand this in a different way, or until I can find a different source of happiness. Because they are also a part of my being here, this moment too, every one of us. That's the perspective of metta. It's realizing that all of life is interconnected, and that the ways we hold ourselves so apart or feels so separate, are constructs. It's born out of assumption. It's born out of patterns and habits. And that the more we see things, the more we can make these kinds of experiments with our attention, the more we will recognize that that world of us and them is like this illusion which binds us. But, you know, people get sort of squeamish because they think that, well, and people have often said, you know, were I to develop a loving heart, then, you know, I'd be kind of foolish and sentimental, and I'd let people hurt me, and I wouldn't stand up for myself. I wouldn't be strong, and I'd let other people be treated in an unjust fashion or abused or harmed, and I wouldn't, you know, really take a stand, and i won't wouldn't really try to make a difference, and I've often reflected on that because it seems to me pretty sad that our idea of love in this culture has degenerated so much that we align it with being kind of stupid you know and weak and foolish and One of the books I wrote was called "The Force of Kindness and uh, is one of my favorite book titles, although. Leela has come up with, I think, the rest of my book titles, and they were very good. She's a master at that. Um, But The Force of Kindness was the suggestion of the publisher. And um, I liked it uh, because I thought it challenged our commonly held assumption, which is that something like kindness you know, is pretty much a secondary virtue that, you know, if you can't be courageous and you can't be uh, fantastic and you can't be beautiful, it's like, yeah, be kind, you know, it's like, it's a little something. <laughs> it's not that good. I mean, it's good, you know, but it's not great, you know, it's like, it's all right, you know. And you think, but truthfully, for any one of us, if we have been so lucky as to feel ourselves the recipient of someone's kindness not in a um, as a measure of exchange you know because we felt we deserved it well I gave you a break you know so give me a break but we really feel we have come up against somebody's kindness that just exists you know not because we've done something to deserve it it's an amazing recollection isn't it you know we don't think kind of with pity of that person like a poor fool you know how weak of you you know it's a tremendous strength it's an extraordinary quality and so that's our exploration in being here it's being able to play with our attention enough so that um... we can experiment in many ways in the ways we view ourselves in the ways we pay attention to those we really care about, anyway. One of the, um, in the natural progression of doing loving kindness practice, we start with ourselves. We'll do that tomorrow morning. We start with offering loving kindness to ourselves, and then we move to someone known as a benefactor. Uh, we'll do that tomorrow morning as well. So, a benefactor is someone who has been good to us. Maybe they've picked us up when we've fallen down. Or maybe we've never met them, but they've inspired us. The texts say, this is the one whom, when you think of them, you smile. You know, it might be an adult, it might be a child, it might be an animal even, a pet. But when you think of them, you smile. And so we begin the process of offering loving kindness. But there are challenges all along the way, even with the benefactor. First of all, some people can't think of anyone, and then they feel like all is lost, you know, <laughs> like they've had a totally wasted life, um, which is not true, you know. Uh, but often people will think of somebody, and people will often say to me, well, I, you know, I chose the Dalai Lama as my benefactor. And things were going fine. I was offering all this loving kindness. And then I thought, wait a minute, what does he need me for? He's a Dalai Lama. And then everything crashes, you know. and they just feel so discouraged. And, and I always find that interesting. And I bring it up because those are the kinds of things we see in the course of doing loving kindness practice. It's not just saying these phrases and everything's all sweet and nice. We see a lot of ways we withhold, or we uh, denigrate our own ability to love, or we see um, even that. I always find that, that comment so interesting, and I've heard it so many times. I think, well, isn't that an interesting assumption, you know, that what I have to offer is nothing. It's negligible. It's insignificant. It couldn't really make a difference. I mean, how do we know? For all we know, the Dalai Lama is completely fed every day by the prayers and well-wishing and loving kindness of others. you know. But what an interesting assumption. What I have to offer doesn't count. It could never be enough. He doesn't need me. You know, and, and that's why it's such a profound practice, because we do see those assumptions. And to go back to the very beginning, where um, in the traditional teachings, we do offer loving kindness to ourselves at first. And as the as the path is laid out within the Buddhist tradition, it said that we start with ourselves because that's the easiest person to offer loving kindness to. And you know, the quotation is um, from the Buddha you can search the entire universe to find someone more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and you won't find that person anywhere. You yourself deserve your own love and affection more than anybody. but honestly it's not all that easy a lot of the time and we see that too and it's all okay you know it's not all going to be sweetness and light you know and it's not like well i felt two minutes of love today and i'll feel 18 tomorrow it's a different kind of process where we have to hold that seeing with some compassion as well you know and all those patterns that we uncover with some compassion as well, as we continue on with the experiment. I'll say a few more things about the practice. One is, I have often found this practice, and this is hard in terms of being on retreat. Um, Well, first of all, I should say, my goal in a retreat like this is to kind of offer the whole scope of the practice so that if you feel inspired to if you're moved to when you're not here you can continue on with it because you know the whole lay of the land you know it doesn't mean that you know if we emphasize ourselves and the benefactor tomorrow that by tomorrow night you should feel done you know and often people Feel in a retreat this length that they're being kind of rushed, and I think that's because you are being kind of rushed. Uh, just so you have some experience of these different categories, as as we go through it, you know, don't feel like you're falling behind or something like that. If if it feels a little bit rushed, and also, um, life is very complicated. It's very intricate you know, and as we move through these various categories of beings, you know, ourselves, a benefactor, a friend, you know, and and onward, um, and each day we'll have at least one addition or elaboration to the unfolding of the practice. You know, sometimes it gets very confusing because people want an absolute, but life's more complicated than that, so sometimes people will say, "Well, you know, I thought of this benefactor And I was offering them loving kindness, and I felt all of this love for them. And then I thought, you know, there was that one time when I called them, and they weren't really there for me. Maybe they're not my benefactor. Maybe they're my difficult person. You know, and it's like the Dalai Lama says, quoting Shanti Deva friends become enemies, enemies become friends. Life is complicated. You know, so rather than feeling you have to find the perfect benefactor, uh, to realize that we're trying to rely on a structure in order to unfold a practice. It's not going to be perfect, but that's OK. And and that's part of what we're doing in the practice is really um, working with a kind of balance, which I'll talk about in a minute. But what I was going to say was that what can be difficult about this practice is that I find that it's the kind of practice where the change happens where it counts, which is when we're living, you know, an ordinary day, maybe more emphatically than when we're sitting here in the hall. You know, it may not be that you say at 3:15 I loved myself completely. You know, I had the great breakthrough experience, but you will find, if you do it, that you are different. When you do say the wrong thing, or you forget something, or you get distracted, you'll be different. You know, my kind of signature story about that is um, from the first month when we moved into this building, And those of us who were here in the beginning thought, well, you know, let's just sit for a month, even though we didn't have a teacher to guide us at the time. So I'd always wanted to do intensive loving-kindness practice, and I knew how it was done, which is, you know, the silent repetition of certain phrases, and you go through these categories, starting with yourself, and I'd done it, you know, for an hour here or there, but I'd never really done it in a systematic way, so I said, okay, let me do it, I have a month. So I was in um, 108 upstairs, that was the first room I lived in in this building, and I spent the first week just doing loving kindness for myself, and I felt absolutely nothing. It was like a completely dreary week, just all week repeating, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, or whatever phrases I was using, it was like nothing. And then at the end of the week something happened to one of our friends sort of in the larger community in Boston so that several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat. And I was one of the people, you know, so I was in the bathroom there getting ready to leave when I dropped this really big jar of something on the tile floor, you know, so the jar shattered and the stuff went everywhere. And the very first thought that came up in my mind was you are really a klutz, but I love you. And I thought, look at that. <laughs> you know, you could have given me anything in the course of the week, and I could not have honestly said something was happening. But something was happening. You know, we also tend to quantify, uh, and reify that that sense of love. We want a great burst of emotion or warmth, but maybe it's happening on a level deeper or other than the emotional. You know, so you have to kind of give it a shot and. You know, kind of, that's what I said, really, you know, to try to do it as wholeheartedly as you can, not kind of evaluating it constantly, and then looking in life, where, you know, the other story I tell now is, this friend of mine took me out to lunch in New York City, and it was like, one uh, one of those confessional lunches, you know, we started out by saying, I just have to confess. And what he said was, you know, he said, I've been doing loving kindness practice for about three years now. And when I sit every day, that's what I do. And when I'm on retreat, that's what I do. And he said, but, you know, in some ways, my experience in sitting, in formal sitting, is not that different in a way from when I started. And he said, but I'm like a completely different person. He said, I'm different with myself. I'm different with my family. I'm different ethically. I'm different in my community and then he looked at me and he said is that enough and I said yeah I kind of think it's enough you know so here too you know um and that's one of the ways we can enjoy this week and this practice is by just letting it go let it ride you know just do it and then we'll see oh you'll see you know uh in your life where it counts because isn't that better you know than having kind of a great experience here that's like completely meaningless in your life, (laughs) you know? So So we do the practice of loving kindness through the silent repetition of certain phrases. Rather than gathering our attention around the feeling of the breath, we gather our attention around these phrases. And the phrases, too, are imperfect. They're words. And so you can drive yourself crazy looking for (laughs) the perfect phrase. But really, the phrase is just the conduit for our attention, for our energy, so don't struggle. you know we 'll suggest different phrases tomorrow, and you'll probably hear with each of us that we tend to use slightly different phrases ourselves, you know, so you 'll hear a variety of of options. But one of the keys of loving kindness practice of all practice actually is balance we 're working. Toward a certain balance. That's how we cultivate the ground. So one of, I mean, there are big balances like between loving care for ourselves and loving care for others, or compassion for someone and equanimity about the fact that we can't make their pain go away. You know, they're like big, huge ways we're practicing balance, and they're also like very immediate precise ways we're practicing balance. In meditation, we're always practicing balance between calm and tranquility and peace on the one side and energy and interest and um, investigation on the other side. And in loving kindness practice, one of the ways we're working toward balance has to do with what I call relying on structure on the one side or being creative, feeling alive on the other side. So here's an example. Once you've settled on a set of phrases, it's usually good to see if you can use those phrases, not to feel imprisoned by them, like you absolutely must use them all the time, but to basically rely on just the same set of phrases. Because otherwise, what we tend to fall into just through the habit of the mind and being so scattered is something like this, you know, maybe you use a phrase like, may I be happy as you're offering loving kindness to yourself, you know, and that's fine. And then you're offering loving kindness to this benefactor and you're thinking, may you be happy and that's fine. And. Then you move on to a friend, you know, may you be happy, and that's okay, too. And then you move on to another friend, and you start. May you be happy, and then you think, well, maybe not you. You know, you get really lazy when you get happy. May you be what, what, what? Let me think, you know? May you be content? No, you'd really sleep your way through life if you were content, you know? Like, you need a little edge, you know? But may you be what, what, what? You know, and so... You can spend a long time doing that, right? And one of the um, engines of the practice is concentration, which means that gathering of all our attention, all our scattered energy into the moment. And we lose that when we're just, you know, constantly thinking uh, in that sort of, you know, constant association and, and digression. So, we don't want to lose that. That is really what empowers the practices, that gathering, that wholeness of our being behind one phrase. And that's why we say, see if you can find a set of phrases that you can basically use for everybody. That's why the phrases are so general. You know, not may I, you know, get a good flight home, but, you know, may I be safe <laughs> or something. Um, because then it could be may you be safe and may you be safe. But we also want the practice to be alive. It's not just repeating these words by rote. It's not just mechanical. You know, so there's some creativity in there and some real sense of the being. And maybe the phrases do need to change with some beings, but it happens. You know, It comes more spontaneously, and you can allow that. And so we work with that balance, where we don't want to lose the power of the concentration, and especially in a practice like this, which is so relational. You know, it's very, very, very tempting just to think all of the time. Another story I often tell, which is um, about when I went to Burma in 1985, which was where I first practiced loving kindness really intensively, systematically, finally, uh, with a teacher. And at one point, uh, my teacher, Saito Upandita, said, I want you to go back to your room and offer loving kindness to a good friend. So I went back to my room and I thought of a friend. And right away I started thinking, I wonder what the time difference is between Rangoon and Northampton. You know, I wonder where she is right now. I wonder if she went out to dinner. Yeah, I bet she did go out to dinner. I wonder where she went out to dinner. You know, did she go out to that Greek restaurant? Did she go out to the Italian restaurant? Would she go out to the Japanese restaurant? No, she couldn't have gone to the Japanese restaurant. That closed, I think. Isn't it strange? Restaurants in that corner, this is a totally true story, restaurants in that corner always close. I wonder why that is. It makes no sense. It's, rec- it's really near Smith College, and there's great parking. Why do they always close? Maybe it's bad feng shui. What is feng shui anyway? You know. And it's like totally gone for a long, long, long period of time, which is very different than the power of all of that You know, complete presence of like, may you be happy. May you be peaceful, so we need to really remember, you know, what we're doing, <laughs> which is the structure of the practice, the phrases, the presence, the concentration, the beginning again. But you also should have fun, you know, and and see it as a form of play, and that it is creative and it's interesting, and in that we will see many, many, many things, and we can still be kind to ourselves, as as all of these different elements you know, arise. Like, may you be happy, but not as happy as I am, you know, or whatever it might be that uh, you suddenly discover uh, going on. Really, you know, it, it's, it's a time when we can really move out of that landscape of judgment um, into a, a whole different way of relating to ourselves in terms of discovery, exploration, experimentation, um, and real freedom.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.